One of the questions that uh, I wonder about sometimes, and it's a question that I often wonder um, when I'm meeting somebody new or I'm going through something hard. It's a question I've wondered when I've, I've been charged with hiring somebody or doing interviews. And that question is, who is someone really? Because we live in a world where it's just really easy to fake it. It's easy to project an image of yourself. It's easy to, to look good from the outside or to look good far away. But when you get up close, you see who somebody really is. When people get up close to us, they see who we really are. And I've discovered in life there's a few ways to discover who somebody really is. One of those ways is to take somebody on a road trip. You discover who people are on road trips. I've even heard people say, I like that person, but I'm never going on a road trip with them. Uh, Another way to figure out who somebody is is to give them dial-up internet and see how they handle the speed. Are they they really patient? (laughs) Are they long-suffering? Another way to figure out who somebody is is to put them in traffic on the 405 in L.A. during rush hour. Then you'll see who they really are. Figure out who somebody really is? Yeah, have them work at home and try to homeschool three small children. If you were at my home this spring, you would have seen who I really am. And there were some days that it wasn't super encouraging. And then one of my friends, he's responsible for hiring a lot of the team in his company. And he says, we always make sure when we're hiring somebody to take them out for a meal and watch how they treat people who serve them. Because if you treat somebody as if they're insignificant when they're serving you, it's a good chance that there's a character issue that will show up in their company. All of these are ways that people see who we really are. And I know that our world is now dominated by conversations about masks, but I believe that we're going through an unmasking right now, where we're seeing who people really are. And one person I know this week called this, he said that we're going through an apocalypse. And I said, like, you know, like fire and earthquakes. And he's like, well, that's that's what our culture often thinks about apocalypse. But the original Greek word that we translate apocalypse means something slightly different. The Greek word that's our source of apocalypse means an unveiling or an unfolding of things not previously known and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. We're going through a year where a lot is being unveiled, a lot is being revealed. And I just want to warn you, because this is my response as I was writing this part of the message. Our temptation when we start talking about an unveiling is to focus and think about what is being unveiled in everyone and everywhere outside of us. Some of you went down a political line as soon as I started talking about this. Some of you went down a cultural line. And and here's what I just want to encourage you with. You are going to stand before God one day and give an account. Not for me, but for you. I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to give an account. Not for you, but for me. And many times what in my heart and maybe in your what's happened this year is I have gotten caught up and been more concerned with what was being unveiled out there than what God was revealing and unveiling in here. And what we have been saying all throughout this summer in the book of James is nothing will change in this world until we become more broken and aware of what God is unveiling in the own sin of our own hearts, 
then we are broken for what's happening outside of it. I'm not saying don't be broken for sin and brokenness and pain in our world. What I am saying is the place of pride, the place where we find ourselves opposed to God, is when we're more concerned with somebody else's unveiling than we are with ours. And what James keeps doing in my life as I continue to wade into it to prepare these messages is God is unveiling things in me that, frankly, I don't want to see. He's unveiling things in me that I don't want to deal with, and he's revealing things that I must deal with if I will continue to become the person God made me. And unveiling often, often happens in the midst of adversity. If there's ever a word that summarizes 2020, it's the word adversity. And adversity means a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. It's a great definition of 2020. A state or an instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. Adversity. And there's a famous saying about adversity that's been attributed to lots of different people. I couldn't figure out this week who actually said it first. But the original statement is this, that adversity doesn't build character. Adversity reveals it. And that's our big idea for this morning. That adversity reveals character. That if we're, gonna, if we're going through this state or continued instance of serious difficulty, interruption, pain, frustration, what that is going to reveal or unveil in us is the true state of our character before God. And that's part of why God gave us his word. In the book of Hebrews, it says that this book is, is a sword. And it, it cuts down into our hearts and it divides bone from marrow. It reveals the truth. This is a dangerous book. Don't read it lightly because it will read you. And because of the Holy Spirit, it will reveal you. And then you'll have an opportunity to respond. Today, we're going to be in the book of James chapter 5. We're going to wrap up this series in James next week. I encourage you to be here as we conclude this series. But in James chapter 5, we have this section that I, when I first saw, I go, oh man, this is like the shortest section so far in the series. This is going to be really easy. <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. In these six verses, James packs a lot in that we're going to try to unpack today. And because this is God's word and because we want to honor it, I want to invite you to stand as we read I'm reading along in the English Standard Version. You may be reading along something else, but if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. This is what James wrote. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Heavenly Father, we pray 
that as we open your word today, you would open and reveal our hearts. We pray that you would give us the courage to stay in the moment and see what you want us to see. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as I was going through the text this week, and the text was going through me, my, my focus landed on three images that this text brings us, three images for Jesus' followers to consider during adversity. And I think that we are all going through adversity to some degree or another. Our church is, is going through adversity as we walk through the news that we just shared with you a few minutes ago. And these three images have helped me this week to process this, and I hope they help you. I hope they give you something to consider and meditate on this week as you go throughout your days. And here's the first image. James says, he says, consider the patience of a farmer. Consider the patience of a farmer. Beginning in verse 7, this is what he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, second time patience appears, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, third time in two verses, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James uses a word there, patience, that I think a lot of us have our own definitions and mental images of, but the literal meaning of the Greek word that we translate as English, patience, gives an idea of being long-tempered, which is not how most of us have lived this year. Most of us have lived this year as short-tempered. If there was a word picture in this word, patience, in Greek, it would be the image of a long fuse. You know, like if you were setting up a bunch of fireworks, you would want to, want to run a long fuse back to where you are so that you'd be away from the firework when it, went, when it went off. And James is saying that's how Jesus' followers who have been exiled and pushed out of your homes, who have been sent away because of persecution, the people who received the book of James, he's saying, hey guys, hey ladies, be long-tempered. Be long-fused. And if you want an image of having a long temper, if you want an image of having a long fuse, then consider the farmer. Farming is not a job for those who are impatient. It is not a job for those who measure success one hour or day at a time. Farming demands a much longer view. I've brought some props today. This is not a magic show, but I am going to be walking you guys through some images here. And, and the image that the scriptures give us is, is of a farmer who at the beginning of the, the year in spring plants seeds in the ground and then his work begins. Over time, the, the, the farmer has tended to the soil the farmer has prepared the soil to receive the seeds. The farmer has put the seeds in the soil. The farmer tries to, to help that seed grow in every way that he can. But there is one thing in the day of James that the farmer cannot do. And that is make it rain. 
In the passage, if you have your Bible open, James describes the early and the late rains. Planting would happen in the early spring. Rain would then come in the late spring and lead to the initial growth. And then rain would come again in the early fall before harvest to finish the growth. And the farmer had to be patient to wait for what he could not make happen to get the ultimate result that he wanted. And James here is reminding us that no matter what culture we're a part of, biblical patience stands in stark contrast. Biblical patience is fulfilling my responsibilities while looking to heaven for what is outside of my power and control. Patience is not passivity. And many of us, when we hear the word patience, we think sitting down, feet up in the easy chair, waiting, passive. Biblically speaking, that is not patience. The patience of a farmer isn't just he plants in the spring, he goes to Aruba, and then he comes back in the fall for the harvest. No, he's working every single day, fulfilling his responsibilities, while at the same time looking to heaven for what is outside of his control, the rain. And this is where we struggle. I don't know a single person who says, you know what, I'm really patient. And secondly, I know many of us, when we are forced to be patient, we struggle to continue to fulfill our responsibilities in the meantime. What we end up doing is we try to do God's job while abdicating our job. We want to be the rainmaker where God wants us to be the soil tiller. And so I want to encourage you to think about today, what can you do while you wait patiently? What is your job and your responsibility? What has God put in front of you that you can actually do while you wait for what you can't do? Farmers have so many things they can do to help the the plants grow and as they're growing to help them grow well. They can do what they can to add water that doesn't come from rain. They can tend to the soil. They can look out for bugs. They can do all of those things while they're waiting for what God can only do. What about you? What can you do while you're waiting patiently? What are the things that God has put in your hands to do that are your responsibility? And the reason why James says this is so important, he says multiple times that the Lord is at hand. Literally, the image he gives is that Jesus is on the doorstep. Because that's how we always have to live. We don't know when he will return. And so we are invited to always consider Jesus on the doorstep of returning. And James is saying to us that when we live with a mindset that Jesus is on the doorstep preparing to return, we don't have a dead hope, we have a living hope. That our hope is alive and real because we trust the word of Jesus who said that he is preparing a place for us and he will return. Therefore, what we do in this moment matters greatly. James begins this section talking about patience. And then in verse 10 and 11, he talks about steadfastness and endurance. Let me be clear. These are different words. These are different concepts. 
He holds up Job as an example of steadfast and endurance. If you've read Job, you know that Job was steadfast, but he was not patient. He endured to the end, but he was not patient along the way. And the word here that in your Bible may be steadfastness, long-suffering, enduring. Here's what one commentator said about it. He said, no English word is quite strong enough to express the active courage and resolution here implied. Constancy and endurance come nearest. Literally in our language, they failed to find a word that describes the strength and the courage and the resolve required to endure. This is rare, folks, to be able to stand firm and endure and wait for what God can do and you can't. You haven't been able to have a baby. And you want to have a baby. You lost your job. You want to get a new one. You want life to go back to normal. And it won't. James says, endure. Remain steadfast. Jesus in Mark 13, 13 in the message says, stay with it. That is what's required. Stay with it to the end. You won't be sorry, Jesus says. You'll be saved. And so James says to a people who are living in adversity, consider the patience of a farmer and remain steadfast. Don't give up. The second image James gives us is he says, consider the mess of a grumbler. Consider the mess of a grumbler. Now, we're going to go back to verse 9. I know I skipped over it, but I want to come back. I wanted to give it its whole own section. I think there's a lot here for us. In James 5, 9, James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, the same line. Now, now when, when James is saying here, do not grumble, he's not saying, do not grumble against God. Because we're human. Of course, we're going to cry out to God. What he's saying is that when you're in adversity, do not grumble against each other. Do not grumble with other people because James knew what would happen. He knew what his half-brother Jesus knew, that when we grumble against one another, Satan steps into that moment and tears at the fabric of our unity. The final prayer of Jesus was not that we would live free from adversity. The final prayer of Jesus was not that we would see him face to face. The final prayer of Jesus was not that we would have easy, safe, comfortable lives. The final prayer of Jesus before he went to the cross is that we would be united the way he and his father are united. And that is why Jesus' final prayer is always Satan's first place of attack. Because if he can divide, he can conquer. And when we begin to grumble against one another, that's what happens. I've got a, another image here for you. I think what a, uh, a grumbler experiences is what we've all experienced. Frustration. For us, it's looked like COVID-19. Washing and wearing masks. Homeschooling your kids. 
while also working full-time from home. Fighting on Facebook over politics. Fighting on Facebook over race. The bills not meeting the means. Fighting with our families. Not being able to come to church in person. And we're overflowed. And here's the problem. Instead of taking this and pouring it out to God, you know what we do? We stuff. You stuff. I stuff. We just stuff it down. And when we stuff it down, it gets on us and it gets on everybody else. Here's my question for you. How much of your conflict this year has nothing to do with the people around you and everything to do with your own internal frustration? See, I think the grumbling we're all experiencing is that we're all trying to hold in stuff we were never designed to hold in. I know this because this is a conversation that has happened in my bedroom week after week, month after month this year, where my wife and I have had to say, I'm sorry, you've been paying the price for my, and just fill in the blank. We're taking out our frustration on each other because we're trying to pull down and push down stuff that we were never designed to hold. And instead, there is an invitation to pour it out to God instead. Instead of hurting the people around you with your pain, to pour it out to God. I want to encourage you today. I think one of the application points, and this is not one of my next steps, is to make a phone call, send a text message, or sit somebody down in your home and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm a mess, and you're a mess, because of what I've been trying to hold in. I'm not doing well. And then the invitation is to take that and pour it out to God. This is why we're calling for a day of fasting and prayer. Because I'd rather us pour it out to God than be covered in it ourselves. I don't want you to wear this. I don't want to wear this. I want to give it to God. So beware the mess of a grumbler. Number three, third and final image, consider the weight of your words. Consider the weight of your words. James ends this section in James 5, 12 with this challenge. He says, but above all, in other words, this is the most important thing I've been talking to you about. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you might not fall under condemnation. James knew what we knew, that when it comes to a situation, we have two temptations. When we're asked about something, instead of telling the truth, we're tempted to inflate it and exaggerate it, or we're tempted to downplay it, minimize it, 
and tell a half-truth. And in addition to that, James says, we're tempted to attach God's name to that and swear by God's name to prove to somebody else that we're telling the truth. And this is an ancient, ancient issue. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. The third commandment here in Exodus 27 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, growing up, when I heard this, I thought that's why if I hit a golf ball and it hooks, I don't call out the name of the person who died for me. If I'm really frustrated and I hit my thumb with a hammer, I don't attach God's name to a cuss word. If I'm overwhelmed and shocked and can't believe it, I don't say, oh my, and then the name of the one I worship. But there's something deeper here. See, when here in Exodus, Moses speaking for God says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This word vain is the Hebrew word, habel. And it's a word that means vain, light, vapor. It's the same word that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He's saying everything is habel. It's vain. It has no weight. It says, when you speak God's name like this, you are treating God's name as if it's some light, insignificant thing. In, in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the word for glory is the word kabod. Can you advance this one for me, Kelly? And the word kabod, which we translate as glory, literally means weight or heaviness. And so what, what James is inviting us to do is to not take the name of the Lord lightly, but to instead... Take it as a heavy, weighty thing. This is God. He's heavy. Somebody said, why didn't you grab a 20? Because I wanted to struggle in front of you. (laughs) I wanted to show you this is God. His glory is a heavy, weighty thing. I'm going to put it down now because I can't hold it anymore. And so here's the question for you. When we take God's name in vain, next slide, we're treating God lightly when we should be treating God's name as a weighty thing. It's not about you saying this word instead of that word. It's not about you coming up with new and creative ways to avoiding taking God's name as a cuss word. It's in your heart. Are you treating God as the weighty thing that he is? Are you treating him like this? Like he's this light thing? It doesn't matter. I love what Tony Evans says. He says, if you have to swear to convince someone you're sincere, you have a reliability problem. And it's true. It's true. So, say what you mean. Mean what you say. Let your yes be yes. And your no be no. I'm going to give you some next steps this morning as I walk around and make a mess all over the stage. Next step, number one. 
I want to invite you to pause this week when you bubble over and pour out your grumbling to God instead. Pause. And before you push it down, pour it out. That's why for me, I literally have set two different times in my phone and I'm using an app that helps me with this. At 10 and 2, I don't know if I'm going to be pouring over by that point, bubbling over. I'm just guessing it's going to happen at some point in the day. So I pick two times and hopefully they're in the ballpark. I pause. It's an invitation to pour it out in a way that actually gives life instead of messes life up. Number two, identify one thing that you have responsibility for, but you haven't been doing. What's one place where you've been so concerned with what God isn't doing that you've been trying to take his job while abdicating yours and say, you know what? I can do this. God's put this responsibility in my hands and I'm going to take it while I wait for him. And then number three, weigh your words. I know some of you that like to guess blanks. You're like, oh, I think it's watch. And you put watch in there. Now you're scratching it out. I'm sorry. I want you to weigh your words. Families, as you're together this fall, how can you help each other weigh your words? Because, you know, words are not this. They're that giant weight I won't grab again. In the lives of each other and in our relationship with God. Some of you are still trying to get over the words somebody spoke to you, not in 2020, but in 2000. And if that's the case with our words with each other, how much more are words with God? So don't watch your words. Weigh them. And make sure that you're taking them seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these images and these pictures that you give us from your word. We thank you that you have shown us truly who we really are. And I thank you that amidst my feeble and imperfect attempt to communicate your word today, your Holy Spirit was present in hearts working. And I pray that those who heard these words, whether here in this room or who are watching online, I pray that they were open to that, that they remain open to that. Jesus, I pray that you would work in our hearts today, even as our character is being revealed and all of us are discovering something that we don't want to look at, something we'd rather not see. Jesus, I pray that in this place and in this moment, as you reveal the truth, you would implant your grace. That we wouldn't live under condemnation and navel gaze at all the things in us that aren't yet as you want it to be, but that we would turn our eyes and look to you. Our hope isn't that we could self-help personally develop our way into holiness, Father. Our hope is in you. And we are so glad to have a living hope. So today, for just this moment, we turn and we look to you. If you're watching online and you need a living hope, you realize that your attempts to make sense of life have made a mess of things and made a mess on others, I want to invite you to trust God with that mess, to invite him into it, and to watch him make it something beautiful as only he can. 
If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you could do that right now by praying a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I offer myself to you. I'm a mess and my life is a mess. I'm a broken, sinful mess and I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need you to do what I can't do for myself. Thank you for coming, dying in my place, taking the penalty that I certainly deserved. I turn my life over to you and I pray that you'd make something of it. I want to follow you. Lead me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you made a decision today or you'd like to speak to a pastor, we'd encourage you to text the word Jesus or the word trust to 928-288-5490 anytime this morning. We'd love to come alongside you to pray with you.